Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheck. Think about our built environment and how much of it is designed around safety and security. The gated communities, the numbers on top of office buildings, the entrances and exits, garages, elevators, and eyes on the street. Now imagine seeing our daily landscape through the eyes of someone that wanted to break into our homes and our offices. Suddenly, architecture takes on a whole new dimension, one that my guest Jeff Manaw conveys in his new book, A Burglar's Guide to the City. Jeff Manaw is the author of Building Blog and the Building Blog Book. He's a former senior editor of Dwell Magazine and a contributing editor at Wired. He's co-director of Studio X NYC, an off-campus event space run by the architecture department at Columbia University. He's taught at Columbia, USC, and the University of Technology in Sydney. And it is my pleasure to welcome Jeff Manaw here to talk about The Burglar's Guide to the City. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here. This notion of sort of looking at everything through the eyes of, of a burglar, the idea of, of how to break in any place, really does change one's whole perspective on one's environment. Talk a little about that mm. first. Um, it does. I think that when you begin to look at buildings from the perspective of their vulnerabilities or their blind spots or how you might access an architectural space without using the front door, um, you know, thinking about it tactically like that or strategically um, really does reveal details that you otherwise wouldn't have seen when it's so easy to take for granted that you can walk up to a building, go into the front door and basically do everything the way the architect intended. And so, you know, looking at the built environment through the eyes of a burglar, I think not only transforms the kinds of things that you see, um, but also really, you know, re- reveals uh, potential movement through the built environment in ways that you wouldn't have anticipated. The other side of that, of course, is that if you're reverse engineering that and you're trying to build the building as securely as possible, you almost, as an architect, you almost need to bring in a burglar as a consultant. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's true. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it would be quite interesting, actually, if there was a way to, you know, hire a burglar for a day to go through your architectural plans <laughs> and, and tell you all the all the weaknesses. Um, but you're correct. That is the flip side of all of this, which is that, you know, if you do think as a criminal, so to speak, when it comes to how the built environment might be used, you can, of course, use that insight to prevent those things from happening. And so an architect or a homeowner or a business owner um, does in fact do quite well to think in terms of the people who might want to take advantage of, you know, a plate glass window or a door around back or a low slung roof that's easy to get onto and cut down through. And so if you do think like this, the, the, the goal of course then is that you can protect yourself and you can protect your family and, 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 and your own possessions. Um, by uh, realizing the way that somebody might try to get in. It also leads to a kind of acute paranoia that can come out of all of this if you start seeing it (laughs) around every turn. Um, It can, but at the same time, uh, you know, I suppose that's a a risk. But uh, the, the, the the flip side of that, though, is simply that uh, you become more attuned to things that you didn't notice and that you notice the ways now that, um, other people might be seeing buildings, uh, but also it, 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 it's, it's an exciting thing as well, I think, when you begin to note that uh, how buildings are built can affect how people might use them. You start seeing little details like a tree branch that would allow someone to climb onto a balcony and then get into a bedroom or uh, get onto the roof of a house or that kind of thing. And so it can lead, obviously, to paranoia, but I think that it also just leads to a more heightened sense of the possibilities that exist in the, in the, in the built environment. In your experience, to what extent are architects today 
thinking about this, paying attention to this? Well, in all honesty, I would say very few. I think that what has happened is that security has been um, seen as almost a, I'm not going to say politically incorrect, but it's been something that if you're paying attention to it, it means that as you, as you just implied with your previous question, that you're paranoid, that you're over-focusing on questions of security, et cetera. Um, so architects, I think, tend to relegate these questions to basically aftermarket solutions. So they'll kind of design whatever they want. And then if you need to make sure a burglar can't get in, you then have to hire a security company. And then so someone who came in who had nothing to do with the, build, the design of the building then has to retroactively figure out the choke points, the, uh-huh. the uh, cones of vision if you would need a security camera, um, the portals or other openings that would need burglar's alarms. Um, so there's all kinds of things that need to happen after the fact. And that if you had thought about those from the very beginning, there's some really interesting design solutions that would allow you to make a home or a business more secure from the point of view of keeping people out and yet not sacrificing design so that, you know, you have a ground floor window and then the only conceivable solution is to put bars on it. Um, you know, there are other ways to have designed that window that, that would have made those bars uh, you know, not the most elegant solution. So architects really do need to think about this more. Um, having said that, I'll just note briefly that um, in the book, what's interesting is that there are some people operating in the design world through the notion of safe rooms or uh, what, what, what are popularly known as panic rooms. Mm-hmm. And even though they are not architects, uh, there is a really interesting architectural uh, angle on how they are trying to design impenetrable fortified units that you can install in your home that, that, that burglars will be unable to get into. And so that, too, is, is a design question. Of course, you have to know that the burglar's coming to go inside the panic room, I suppose. Uh, that's true. Those are designed so that exactly so that you would already have a slight buffer, knowing that someone is in the house, or they're immediately outside the house for that matter. Um, but you can get into it very quickly. But yeah, that, that that's part of the calculation that a, that a panic room comes with. Right. I mean, the other part of the calculation is one wonders what the cost-benefit analysis is with respect to what most burglars take, what they do, how much physical danger there is. Do they tend to come when people are at home, etc.? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that analysis. Um, there really are, actually. And in fact, it's a, it's a pretty dizzying analysis. Um, one of the things that I, I do in the book is show that while trying to figure out what a burglar will strike, you know, there's any number of different checklists and questions that you can go through, and they are pretty accurate. You know, there's a, there's a statistical evidence that burglary does follow certain patterns. Um, but on the other hand, there's always an anomaly. You know, there's always the the burglar who strikes uh, in the middle of the night when everyone is home or one who hits in the middle of the day on a Saturday when you're all home watching football. Um, so, you know, there are there are exceptions to the rules that are that are, you know, you can't you can't predict and that can be quite frightening. Um, but, you know, having said that, you know, there are there are really interesting examples like in the in the United Kingdom in England, there's there's a police program um, that actually is geared towards being so predictive in terms of what a burglar will target that they've actually constructed these fake apartments. Um, They refer to them as capture houses. Hmm. And what a capture house is, is an apartment that is, uh, no one lives there, uh, but it's fully furnished uh, and it's filled with cameras and other technology to to capture the likenesses, the the faces of of anyone that might come in. And then anything in the apartment is tagged with a UV 
uh, liquid, a tagant, so that it will show up on your hands if you touch anything. And so then the police just wait. Uh, you know, they'll put a laptop out on the kitchen table or that kind of thing. But they have done this because they know that there is a burglar active in that neighborhood or in that city. And that burglar tends to strike apartments like this. And so it's really interesting, I think, actually, that, you know, you, you can, in fact, get so specific with the predictive capabilities of law enforcement uh, that you can actually build this, you know, uh, a, a fake world that the burglars will stumble into without realizing it's actually an apartment run by the police. I mean, I guess part of that is, one, the advances in law enforcement, as you talk about, but also that the traditional burglars tend to not be very clever. That is that is also true, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, I do point out that, um, you know, the the real blockbuster, spectacular stories, and I and there I, I feel that there there are several of those in the book that talk about you know incredibly sophisticated gangs tunneling into bank vaults in Los Angeles using the sewer system, or you know an ingenious Toronto cat burglar who I interviewed who explained that he could use the fire code of Toronto to help choose his next target. Um, you know, these these guys are definitely the exceptions. The the the, the overwhelming majority of burglary is, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a smash and grab variety. It's not the brightest people. I mean, the 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 stories are actually pretty jaw dropping, and and I include those in the book as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, individuals who will try to rob a department store, and then they actually get stuck in the wall. Uh, there was a teenager in Milwaukee who tried to rob a veterinarian's office in order to steal painkillers. Uh, but ended up getting trapped naked in the ventilation shaft. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're not you're not dealing with necessarily the brightest people, but they're also making these decisions in a, you know, it's an opportunistic spur of the moment type of crime in the majority of cases, and they're also usually not in the in the best frame of mind. You know, there's also right. statistical evidence that the majority of burglars are uh, uh, substance abusers, and so that's clearly going to affect their mindset going into this. Suppose when we think about these burglars sometimes, and when we think about it in terms of security and design, it's all in the same with with the same patina that we want to think about Top Cappy or some of the great caper stories of all time. Yeah, exactly, and I think that there is justification for that. You know, it's it's I I I, I, I go at length in the book uh, to to describe basically how you shouldn't overly romanticize the burglar figure, and yet at the same time, it really is quite easy to develop a kind of you know, almost a, a mythic sense of what these guys are, are up to. And, you know, and the sophistication that goes into some of these operations is also is also really interesting. Um, you know, you can see this in heist films, for example, where, you know, basically any act of planning a heist or planning a break-in comes across as some sort of major architectural undertaking. You know, you've got people with blueprints and they've even right. maybe built an architectural model and they're arguing about how to get from one room to the next. And it becomes a very... Uh, engaged architectural or spatial conversation that has the feel of a design office when you actually look at the kinds of things that they're standing around, the tools they have or the models they're looking at. And so that's, that's, a, you know, that's, that's both true to life and also a Hollywood distortion. Um, but when you do see the really major crimes, you know, I mentioned the tunneling uh, gang in Los Angeles who got into a bank vault. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons they were successful, and, and, and it's still an unsolved crime, in fact, um, was that they had a really, really in, uh, granular knowledge of the city's storm sewer network. And so they basically meandered throughout the entire city of Los Angeles underground using the storm sewers, and they yeah, then tunneled from there into the bank vault. And so that kind of knowledge, you know, isn't going to come from just your smash-and-grab, you know, drug-addicted burglar who sees an opportunity. It's it's a 
you know, take weeks of physical hard labor to, to pull off that kind of crime. And um, those are those are compelling, but they're definitely in the minority. Yeah, I mean, we'd all rather think about it in terms of, you know, Ocean's Eleven or the Thomas Crown Affair rather than the smash and grab kind of burglaries. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I think that there's something about the, um, the figure of the burglar that just lends itself uh, really well to that almost, uh, that are almost like figures from folklore. You know, it feels like we want to invest them with our uh, imaginative uh, uh, aura. What is the nexus that you have found between the design element and thinking about the design element with respect to preventing these crimes and how law enforcement is dealing with it today? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there there are two really different planes, I guess you could say, on which to think about this. So one is in the nitty-gritty, very commonsensical details of how you might have constructed or designed a house, and that can include everything from the placement of windows to the the, the, the existence of a side or back door, that kind of thing. Um, sliding, whether or not you have sliding glass doors as opposed to standard doors, for example, um, you can get sliding glass doors off their tracks extremely easily. Um, even if you've got double or triple paned glass in your windows, can be it can be an effect on deterring burglars who recognize the sheer quantity of glass they're going to have to break to get into the house. Um, you know, so there's little details like that, and then privacy fences and hedges that might, um, you know, they they give you privacy when you're trying to eat breakfast in peace in the morning, and you don't want your neighbors to see you. But they also that also means that a burglar isn't going to be seen if they're skulking around inside your house. Mm-hmm. But then I think there's this other plane, which is the way that law enforcement looks at it, and this is where you get into a really compelling uh, and 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 totally different perspective on the city, which is that you know as a police officer you are tasked with trying to figure out if a crime has been committed and the suspect is on the loose, you have to understand where they might go next, how they might do it, and what what opportunities they'll see in the landscape that they'll try to take advantage of. And so I explore this in the book through the eyes of the Los Angeles Police Department's Air Support Division, which is a, a helicopter corps, so it's an aerial policing unit in Los Angeles. And um, what was really interesting about that was this realization that you know, when you're up in the air and you are trying to figure out where where the crime occurred, how people are getting away from it, what led up to it, whether it was a burglary or, for that matter, a car chase, um, you're really looking at the entire environment in a really tactical and interesting way where new neighborhoods are now connected in ways that you might not have anticipated because you know that there's this back street or there's a quiet uh, avenue past the warehouse district that connects two neighborhoods and a criminal is more likely to take that than, than the freeway. And so the entire landscape really takes on a really uh, different uh, point of view. And so I think that when you're a police officer, then you have to think in a, um, a much more kind of volumetric way or a more three-dimensional way about how the city is internally connected to itself and how a criminal might take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just a homeowner, all you really need to do is, is look at your home and think about um, very local vulnerabilities and how you can shut those off. Of course, the home version of that is all the technology of surveillance that we have today, the, the amount of cameras that you can put in your home, the fact that you could be sitting in your office or sitting across the world mile to, you know, tens of thousands of miles away and see what's going on in your house on your phone. It's true. It's a very popular uh, direction now to install surveillance cameras or the, the smartphone uh, connected uh, networked camera system for for, uh, for for the home. It's important to emphasize, though, that seeing a crime occur doesn't equate to solving or stopping that crime. So you might be half a world away, but you know you'll then you'll note that someone has broken into your house. 
but there's also an incredible feeling of impotence there where you can't actually do anything about it. So you can notify the authorities and they can respond, but it's not the, uh, it's not going to necessarily instantly prevent the crime from occurring or obviously lead to the people's arrest, even though you have their, their faces on camera. And so at the same time though, you know, the, the little details like that, uh, having a burglar alarm sign, um, you know, having a visible camera, they can be a deterrent, obviously. So, you know, what the goal is, in fact, is really to, if you can give a burglar even just a few seconds of hesitation so that they are thinking of hitting your house, uh, but then they notice that little detail that makes them think second, uh, think a second time, if that's enough to make them want to go somewhere else, then you've won. So, you know, it's really just a question of a few seconds of hesitation. You want to give even the briefest flicker of doubt to a burglar and, you know, they're going to they're gonna go elsewhere. They're going to go up the street. They're going to go to a new neighborhood or maybe they won't even commit a crime that day. Um, but if you can give, give that sort of um, that sense that this is not the place for them to hit, and if you can do that by having that something like that, like a camera is visible, even though that camera won't stop the crime once it starts, um, then, then you, you'll have a minor victory over the burglar that day and they won't break into your house. Quality of your security really just sends the burglar over to your neighbor's house. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the goal obviously is not to get is to get your neighbor broken into, but uh, uh, it's, it's just to yeah, it's to make the make the burglar go elsewhere. To one extent, uh, our law enforcement, you know, in addition to things like aerial policing that the LAPD does, to what extent are law enforcement trying to encourage better design to address some of these issues? Well, they are trying to do this quite a lot, actually. Um, you'll notice increasingly that police departments will have uh, almost like a design consultancy on board or, or an officer that they work with who is a kind of de- design liaison with the community in order to offer advice for how to secure the environment without going you know, full burglar alarms and that kind of thing. So having things like natural surveillance, which is not using a camera, but is, which is that the uh, a neighborhood is designed such that all of the people living there have natural lines of sight onto the commons areas, or you know, there's no uh, dead zone between the houses, that kind of thing, where someone could hide. Um, and in fact, there's uh, an, an, an entire thing uh, that is basically, it's a crime prevention through environmental design is the, is the technical term for this, but it's a whole way of, of training uh, designers who want to learn this, but also police officers who want to bring this knowledge to the to the community um, on how to make the environment safer through through uh, through these basic kinds of uh, moves. And so, you know, you can really see these things in in envi- or excuse me, in industries where c- security is is much more at the forefront. So, whereas a suburban designer, a, de- a developer, that uh, I mean a real estate developer might not have too much of a concern for security and just they're just going to leave it up to the homeowner to buy a burglar alarm. If you look at casinos, for example, or if you look at museums, um, you know, you begin to notice in fact that there's a great deal of attention paid to natural forms of security so that there isn't a place to hide or there is no way to tunnel through a certain wall without being seen by a camera or a window, or there may not even be a way to access certain parts of the building because of landscaping and that kind of thing. And so, you know, you, it really depends on whether or not the people who designed the structure know for absolutely certain that there's something in that building that someone will try to take. And when you're dealing with a, you know, a $50 million Picasso or you're dealing with, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of, of gambling money in the casino world, 
then you know that you need to secure it better than you do if you just have a suburban development somewhere outside, say, San Francisco. What keeps the romanticism going is that museums are still hit, banks are still robbed, and these things do happen. Uh, it, it's true, and and uh, you know, and every once in a while, there really is another spectacular crime. Um, there was that one in London about maybe a year and a half ago. Right. Um, that everything about it was seemed you know made for the movies, but it was uh, actually a group of men who were the average age was 64, and uh, they basically came out of retirement to pull off one final crime where they rappelled down an elevator shaft, they set up a drilling operation, and they actually uh, tunneled through an 18-inch concrete wall into a vault. And, uh, you know, it would have been the biggest burglary in English legal history. Uh, uh, and, and they were temporarily successful, but they, they, you know, they resorted to their old patterns and they went back to the pub where they used to go to. They bragged about what they had done and they, and they were all arrested. Um, but, on, you know, but again, these things, you know, they stand out precisely because of their rarity. Um, you know, burglary is actually uh, pretty much plummeting in terms of its, its uh, statistical likelihood. So uh, I live in New York City in, in New York since 1990. Um, burglary has gone down 87%, which is a absolutely precipitous drop. So there are a lot of factors leading to, to these kinds of crimes fading. Jeff Menaw, the book is The Burglar's Guide to the City. Jeff, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate it.